<clears throat> that makes how many grandchildren? Five. Five. And you have another one on the way? Oh, shoot. Because I have four and one on the way. I thought we'd be tied again here. <clears throat> okay. So there are some great things about grandkids and there are some not so great things. This is the not so great thing. Uh, we had David last Friday and he passed on this, uh, this thing that I'm dealing with. So I'm going to be drinking a little bit and uh, I pray that you guys can... Can you guys hear okay? Is... Okay. I was going to actually have Brian do this for me, but I felt like he's like in charge. He has to do the whole thing afterwards and stuff. So <clears throat> I'm going to ask that you bear with me, and we're going to look at Zechariah and uh, Luke chapter 1, if you're not there in your Bibles. Today, we continue our journey through the Christmas story. Next week, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we'll reach the end of the journey with the birth of Christ. But today, we come to another birth, that of John the Baptist. John was the forerunner, uh, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And as we've seen in weeks past, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, believes that John is an important part of Christ's birth story. So let's begin by reviewing John's story thus far. Or I should say, John's father, Zechariah's story. <clears throat> Zechariah has been and will continue to be the main character in John's birth story. In verse 5 of chapter 1 we read, <clears throat> In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents, would be John's parents, they were righteous before God, but they were old. Elizabeth was, in fact, barren. For them, having a child was humanly uh, not possible. But God, desiring to show his sovereign power, desiring to show the importance of John and the even greater importance of the one John would prepare the way for, sends the angel Gabriel, a messenger for old Zechariah, and in verse 13 of chapter 1, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just." to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. <clears throat> so John is preparing the people for the Lord's coming. He'll have a great ministry. He'll bring joy. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Zechariah, even though he's a righteous man, he experiences a lapse of faith. He didn't believe uh, Gabriel's joy-filled news. 
He didn't believe his old barren wife could conceive and give birth to a son. So Gabriel responded with indignation. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So for his unbelief, Zacharias struck mute, and actually probably deaf as well. We'll see that in a minute. He can't speak, and he probably can't hear. And in verse 24 we read, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So of course the angel's promise is fulfilled, Elizabeth gets pregnant with John. Then in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, after the angel Gabriel told Mary that she, a virgin, would conceive and give birth to a son, she quickly went to visit Elizabeth. And in verse 56 of chapter 1, we read, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So Mary came to Elizabeth in her sixth month, and uh, in, in Elizabeth's sixth month, and she stayed for three months, so six plus three is nine. So Mary was probably there when Elizabeth gave birth to John. And that brings us to our passage for today. So we have sort of the review up to the point, which begins with the birth of John, but continues to focus on his father, Zechariah. What we'll see first is Zechariah's silence is broken. Beginning in verse 57, we read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Not much, that's it. So John's born. Not much description there. John is born. The neighbors rejoice rejoice with Elizabeth because she's been barren. And then in verse 59, And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, they would have called Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. So as established in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17, the ritual of circumcision customarily took place on the eighth day after the baby was eight days old. And apparently, it had also become the day where you would name the baby. And even though the people uh, thought his name should be Zechariah after his father, both Elizabeth and Zechariah confirmed what the angel had instructed, that his name is John. John means uh, God, Yahweh is gracious. And uh, what a perfect name, right? For the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. For the Lord Jesus was coming to bring grace and to bring mercy to a lost and fallen world. As the Apostle John would write, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So even John's name is meant to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, the coming of grace. 
And notice that since the people had to make signs, this is where we think probably Zechariah couldn't hear as well, because they had to make signs. They couldn't just speak to him regarding the son's name. So as I said, it seems Zechariah was not only mute but deaf as well. But in verse 64 we read, And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So with the naming of John, Zechariah's period of silence comes to an end. And it seems that the the neighbors sense that God God is at work here in a special way, because they're struck with fear and wonder about John. What's, what's going on here? Clearly, God's hand is at work here. Now, I want us to pause here and think about Zechariah's experience. He's a righteous man, but he hadn't believed the words of the angel Gabriel. And for nine months, he was under the discipline of the Lord. He suffered in literal silence. But once his, uh, he names his son John, once he makes that clear, his silence is broken. He could speak, he could hear, and immediately his first words were, blessings to God. And this is again a testament, a testimony to Zechariah's righteousness. He could have been bitter against the Lord, right? He could have been seething in silence for nine months. Lord, I'm a priest. I'm one of your best. I've lived my life day in and day out in obedience to you. And with just one lapse of faith, you sentenced me to nine months of sensory deprivation? Seriously, God, what's up with that? I don't deserve that. But that's not what Zechariah did. Instead, he blessed the Lord. That word blessing in the Greek is is eulogio. It's where we get our word eulogy. It means to speak well of. You know, no matter what a person is like, you speak well of them in their eulogy, right? To speak well of, to praise, to celebrate. My guess is, over his nine months of silence, Zechariah had come to terms with his lack of faith. He had like, uh, I really blew it. And he trusted that God was at work in those silent days and nights. He believed the words of the psalmist, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Or as the author of Hebrews would write later, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Zechariah understood that that through the discipline of the Lord, he was blessed. That he was moved away from sin and unbelief and moved toward righteousness and faith. Now, Zechariah's discipline was clear, right? It was given to him by an angel sent from God. However, our discipline is often less clear. Is this sickness, this one in particular, is it, is it, is it a discipline from the Lord? That financial trouble, is that discipline from the Lord? That broken relationship Is that a discipline from the Lord? Or is it just consequences of my own sin? Just living in a fallen world? Those are questions, those hard questions to answer. 
and it's not really our purpose today, but I would say this. When you experience discipline, difficulty or discipline in your life, blessing the Lord, praising and celebrating the Lord, both while you're experiencing this trouble and once you've been delivered, is always a good idea. Let me share uh, maybe one of the best verses in all of Scripture to that point. One of my favorite passages from the book of Habakkuk. The prophet says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be in the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, things are not going well. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you have Zacharias and Habakkuk's understanding of, of life, of life's difficulties, of disciplines from the Lord? Do you respond by blessing the Lord, by rejoicing in Him for His loving disciplines? We find it easy to rejoice in the Lord, to bless the Lord when things are going well for us. That's easy. Who, everybody could do that. But what about when things aren't going so well? Do we trust God enough to bless Him in times of trouble? Do you praise Him and thank Him for the refining work that He's doing in your life through difficulties and discipline? Zechariah says to each of us, don't be bitter when the Lord brings about discipline. Instead, bless the Lord, for His discipline is a blessing to you. He's at work in your life. It certainly was for Zechariah. I don't believe Zechariah's nine months of silence was some arbitrary discipline from the Lord. I believe it's exactly what he needed. And I say that because out of his time of silence came words of blessing and praise to the Lord. And this should say something to us as well. Especially in our day. Especially in our time. If we're to be people who bless the Lord... Like Zechariah, we too need times of silence. Think about it. Think about our world. Think about the input, the stimulus that we're uh, uh, subjected to on a constant basis. It's hard to concentrate or, or think about anything when we're constantly surrounded by noise, radios and TVs and whatever else. But when we take the time to get away to get alone with our thoughts, then we can consider the greatness of God. We can consider who He is, and we can consider what He's done for us. As the psalmist says, Psalm 46, be still, be quiet, be calm. Get rid of distractions and know that I am God. Zechariah was forced to be still and know that God was God for nine months. And the result was eulogio, blessing, praise, celebrating the Lord. What would it mean for your life if you took some time, maybe not nine months, but just one day, one day where you'd be silent before the Lord? Have you ever done that? I've done it a few times, a few days, just taken this day and went and been with the Lord. You'd be still. You'd receive from Him. You'd receive from His Word. Spend time in prayer and meditation, all in absolute silence. That's what Zechariah was forced to do. 
And the results were amazing. He blessed the Lord. In verse 67, Luke says, And his father Zechariah, John, John's father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and we'll look at what he said in a minute, like we saw last week with his son John in the womb and his wife Elizabeth, Zechariah is also filled with the Holy Spirit. This is truly a, a spirit-filled family, right? You got the baby, the mom, the dad, they're all, man. The Spirit of God is at work through these people to bring about His glorious purposes. And, and Zechariah's purpose at this point was to continue blessing the Lord. What follows is Zechariah's song of blessing. And like Mary's Magnificent that we looked at last week, which is named for its first uh, line, My soul magnifies the Lord, Zechariah's words are also thought, thought of by many as a song which has been come to know which has come to be known as uh, the Benedictus, which is the first word of the Latin phrase, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, which is the first phrase of Zechariah's prophecy, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This prophecy or song of blessing to God is filled with deep insight into the great significance of what was about to happen. Not the birth of John, even though he's mentioned, but with the birth of Jesus, God's anointed one, the Messiah. <coughs> the Messiah, Jesus... And the salvation he would bring is the focus of Zechariah's song of blessing to God. So let's learn from uh, Zechariah what he learned from the Holy Spirit as he was filled with the Spirit. Zechariah begins in verse 68 with uh, really a summary statement. Bless the Lord for his visitation and redemption. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why is Zechariah blessing the Lord God of Israel? Well, to summarize, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This one spirit-inspired verse is packed with deep theological truth. Notice just four things here. First, nine months earlier, Zechariah couldn't believe that his wife would have a child. Now, filled with the Spirit, he's so confident of God's redeeming work in the coming Messiah that he, that he puts it in the past tense. For those who have faith... A promised act, God's promises are as good as done. Zechariah has learned to take God at his word. And so he uh, has remarkable assurance. God has visited and redeemed. It's a done deal. This is uh, at John's birth. Jesus is still, his birth is still a few months away. Second, the coming of Jesus the Messiah is a visitation of God into our world. It's the Lord God of Israel himself who visits and redeems. It's Emmanuel. It's God with us. At this time in history, Israel was under the thumb of Rome. And the godly in Israel were awaiting a visitation from God. Luke tells uh, us in chapter 2, verse 25, that the devout Simeon was waiting for the consolation, the, the consoling, the comforting of Israel. And in 
Chapter 2, verse 38, the prayerful Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. For those who trusted in the Lord, there was great expectation at this time. And now the long-awaited visitation of God was about to happen. God was about to enter the world in a way no one expected. That's second. Third, he was entering, his purpose to come, for coming was to redeem, to ransom, to buy back, to deliver. And as we'll see in subsequent verses, the, the redemption that God brings includes both a national and an individual uh, components. Zechariah's redemption thoughts, what Zechariah was thinking, was probably certainly aimed at Israel. In verse 71, we'll see that Israel, as God's people, are delivered from, from their enemies. And then in verse 77, we'll see that individuals will experience forgiveness for their sins, all of which are granted through God's acts of salvation. God will redeem Israel as a nation, and God will redeem individuals unto salvation. Now, along with the, the fourth thing, along with that, the fourth thing to think about in verse 68 is that God has visited and redeemed his people. This is the consolation of Israel, for which Zechariah hopes. It is the Lord God of Israel who is coming to redeem his people. The people in view are the people of Israel. This was the chosen nation to whom the promises of God had been given. God had the world in view, but he aimed to first come to Israel. As Jesus said in Matthew 15:25, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we Gentiles need not feel left out. As we'll see, even though Zechariah was probably thinking of Israel alone, the fact that he was filled with the Spirit results in a clue that the beneficiaries of this redemption would go beyond Israel. We'll see that in a moment. So that's the way Zechariah begins his song in verse 68. The Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. Bless the Lord for his visitation and redemption. Now in verse 69, he tells us how this visitation and redemption will happen. That's our second point. Bless the Lord for his salvation. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. <clears throat> Do you remember the importance of the house of David? How Gabriel, in announcing Jesus' birth, made a point that Joseph was from the line of David? So in verse 69, Zechariah is not speaking of his son John the Baptist. John was not of the house of David. Remember, his father was a priest, house of Levi. Jesus, through both Joseph and Mary, was from the house of David. And therefore, Jesus is this horn of salvation. Now, what is this horn of salvation? Well, the kind of horn meant here is not a musical instrument. It's not a trumpet, a trombone. But instead, the deadly weapon of a wild ox. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called a horn. Zechariah got the image from the Old Testament. Psalm 92, 9 and 10 gives us a picture of what that horn stood for. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, 
For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. The horn is a sign of strength, and it means victory. The horn of salvation from the house of David, the warrior king, will destroy the enemies of the Lord and will bring salvation to his people. And verse 70 says that the coming of this horn of salvation was prophesied of of old as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old. There are only two instances of this phrase, horn of salvation, in the Old Testament. One is in 2 Samuel 22.3, which is quoting Psalm 19.2. So they're really the same. Psalm 19.2, I mean, excuse me, 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. These are David's words after God saved him from his enemy Saul. God is the horn of David's salvation. God is the defense, his shield, and his offense, his deadly powerful horn. He's the horn of salvation because he uses his power to secure and to protect his people. And that takes us back to Luke 1.69. Jesus is the horn of salvation because he's a deadly weapon and a tremendous power. And how will he use this saving power? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Jesus, the horn of salvation, will save his people from their enemies. He will defeat and destroy the enemies of God's people. And why will he do this? Verse 72 answers, to show the mercy toward, excuse me, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Jesus, the powerful horn of salvation, comes to save his people Israel from their enemies. Not because they deserve salvation, but because God has promised mercy to their fathers. God has made a holy covenant with his people. He's sworn an oath to Abraham. So because of his mercy and his faithfulness, God sends Jesus Christ as the horn of salvation to deliver his people. And who are his people? Well, Zechariah is thinking primarily of the Jewish people. That the horn of salvation, the Messiah of Israel, will one day literally destroy their enemies and gather his people into his land and rule them in peace. And Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, is certainly not wrong about that. The Bible teaches that one day Christ, the Messiah, will come a second time. He'll establish an earthly kingdom and he'll deliver the nation Israel from their enemies. But Zechariah's words necessarily imply more than that. Verses 74 and 75 shows that the goal of God's redemption in raising up this horn of salvation is to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's purpose in raising up this horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, is not just to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people. A people that will serve the Lord without fear. That they might serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. And this is crucial. Because it means that the redemption spoken of in verse 68 includes 
redemption, deliverance from fear, not only of earthly enemies, but from all unrighteousness. And this implies that ultimately the people spoken of in verse 68 are not merely Jews, but all who are not enemies of the Messiah, all who trust the Messiah, all who follow Jesus Christ, any who serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. So even though Zechariah is thinking mainly of the eventual national redemption of believing Israel, yet under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we see that this visitation and redemption of God's people is going to mean profound spiritual transformation and spiritual battle for all who trust in Christ. And therefore, to view Jesus as the horn of salvation is to see Him not not only as a national liberator, but more importantly for us now as a spiritual conqueror. If the goal of God's redemption is to be achieved, the gathering of a people who are fearless and righteous, then God need conquer fear and unrighteousness. And the good news of Zechariah's song of blessing, the good news of Christmas, is that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Jesus is the great ox horn of salvation all those who call upon Him and trust in Him. So bless the Lord for His salvation. And then beginning in verse 76, Zechariah addresses his son's part in all of this. Remember, this is all following John's birth, so now John gets, gets in the action. Bless the Lord for His forerunner. Verse 76, And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is partially a a repetition of what Gabriel had said to Zechariah about John. John will be a prophet. He'll go before the Lord. He'll prepare the way. John will declare that salvation and forgiveness of sins is found in Christ alone. Again, as John, some 30 years later, so eloquently describing Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He's the horn of salvation. And why has God chosen to raise up John the Baptist as one who would prepare the way for the Lord? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There are people, many, most, all people, in John's world, like there are people in our world who sit in darkness. People like many of us used to be, and some of us maybe still are. People stumbling their way through life. People who are unable to see the destruction that sin brings to their own lives, to the lives of others. People who don't see the eternal shadow of death that hovers above them, waiting to take them to a Christless eternity. And to those, Zacharias says, God will show His tender mercy. He will not leave His people in darkness. They will see the sunrise. Light will shine into the darkness. And they'll be guided into the way of peace with God. And how will this light come? 
Who will shine into the darkness? Well, in the context, the answer is the forerunner, John the Baptist. John was a gift from God to the people of Israel in his day. He prepared them for the coming Messiah of Christ the Lord. He did this by shining a light into the darkness, as Luke would later write of John, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John shone the light on the people's need for cleansing and repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, and he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was the forerunner. He prepared God's people for the coming of Christ, for the coming of the horn of salvation, That was his purpose. And we, like John, are to be forerunners as well. Not to prepare a world for the coming of Christ in the flesh, because he's already come in that way, but we're to prepare the way for Christ to come into the hearts of his people today. We, like John, can shine a light into the darkness. We can expose the destructive nature of sin and the shadow of death that hovers over those who are without Christ. And most importantly, we can guide the feet of people into the way of peace with God. We can tell them that for those who repent of their sins, Jesus Christ offers peace with God the Father. We can tell them through Christ's death on the cross, they can receive forgiveness for their sins and salvation for their souls. We can tell them that Christ is the horn of their salvation, that He's powerful and can can defeat sin and darkness, the sin and darkness that abides in their hearts. We can tell them the same thing John told the people of his day. John the Baptist said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. We can tell all these things. In fact, I have just told them all to you right now. And if there are any among us who've yet to believe in the Son of God, if you're still living in darkness and disobedience to Him, if you've yet to receive His gift of eternal life and are still under the wrath of God, then I, like John, would call upon you to repent, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, demonstrating your trust in and confidence and obedience to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And for those who have turned For those who have believed in the Son, who have received eternal life, I'd call upon you as I call upon myself to be like John, to seek with your words and deeds to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of Christ. Bless the Lord by being a forerunner to Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your amazing word. Thank you for your spirit that filled Zechariah and gave us Uh, so many profound things about your coming. Lord, I pray you would continue to just be with us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to call us, to use us. Lord, I pray that, that we could be like John, that we could be used as forerunners for you in the hearts of the people in, in our world, in our lives that we could prepare a way for your, your coming into them. In Christ's name, amen.